Well, welcome. We are beginning. We're not in the middle of the series. I didn't do it this week. Normally every week I say we're in the middle of the series. But really we're just beginning a series that's going to last all year called The Three Journeys. And this is a series entirely devoted to spiritual growth. So we split it up into three different avenues. And we are in the first one, which is the inward journey. So we're talking about identity stuff. Who am I in God? So this is really targeted towards Christians. Finding out who you are, finding out who you're not, and finding out how you become more like God. Last month, we did a series on the way of the heart by Henry Nouwen. One of the best series, or at least a favorite series, I think, that I've ever done, partly because I just got to read and reread one of my favorite books over and over and over again. But I suggest listening to that for techniques on how to take this inward journey. Tips on how to really internalize this and make it work in your daily life. And now we're on a series over... 1 Corinthians 6.11. Well, what, what does that say? We'll get to there. But today's topic is sanctified. Sanctified. Last time was washed. Today is sanctified. Now let me give a little bit of a, a disclaimer, okay? This is a massive, gigantic theological term. So sanctified, and next week we're doing justified, which is another huge, gigantic theological term. Books and articles have been written and people with tons of letters after their names and really cool glasses argue about these things. And I'm writing a 25 to 75 minute sermon on it. I'm not going to tell you which one it'll be today. But be gracious with me because it could have gone anywhere. And I tried to really get deep on what this verse says in particular. And I'm going to give you what is it at this time my opinion on what it means to be sanctified, sanctification. So if that matters to you, mom, You're going to find out today. Let's read the chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, up to 6.11. Now, Pastor Pastor Paul, oh my goodness, the Apostle Paul, who is also a pastor, some people think most often a pastor, he's writing to the Corinthian church because they have a ton of problems. We are the beneficiaries of St. Paul's migraines. We have the New Testament because he dealt with problems all over the world all the time. And we get to see his wisdom in action, God's wisdom through Paul. And he's writing to a bunch of people that are sexually immoral, suing each other, having schisms and fights amongst themselves. It is a train wreck. So we're going to pick it up in the middle of St. Paul telling them they shouldn't sue each other for fun. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So we're getting the scene here. It's a mess. They're suing each other over trivial things in public. They're ruining the reputation of the church, and God... By proxy. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Now, the unrighteous there, this is, this is a heading. This is a type of person. And he's about to list some attributes of these unrighteous people. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Yes, that's actually in the Bible. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's our verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And today we're talking about what it means to be sanctified. Let me just say that as I've read and reread this, I think and such were some of you is actually just a rhetorical device. That's St. Paul's delicate way of saying all of you guys fell somewhere under these headings. It's difficult to find something that doesn't affect one of us. His, I don't think his point is, some of you were pretty bad, and you know, there's some other people of you that were all right. No, everybody finds himself somewhere on there. Everybody would have been indicted by that. But they were washed, and they were sanctified, and they were justified, so something changed. Last week we talked about washed. We talked about how that means more than just getting clean. Remember the truck, the dirty truck, and we talked about how if you washed it, it was still a truck, and it's still meant to go in the mud. It's an off-road vehicle. And we talked about how God's washing is different because God's washing would wash that 4x4 Jeep and it would be a Z06 Corvette. It's totally different. It's not a Jeep anymore. It's not meant for the mud. It's a different thing. I am going to give you this sermon on sanctification, which really builds on that, in one one minute and 25 second clip. That is not Pacific Rim or Voltron. This one's for the ladies. Because you'll all get it. I'm going to give you every point I'm going to make after this clip, and then I'll expound. But if you just can't stay here longer than five minutes, you're going to get the whole sermon right away. You guys ready? Here we go. I don't know what this is going to do with my presentation, so we are in. It is telling me there's going to be a commercial in this video. Why are you doing this to me, YouTube? Oh, it's not playing. Oh, no. Oh, this is terrible. Google's never done that to me before. Let's try this. There we go. Amen. Oh, 
Thank you. That's right. Let me get back to presenter view now. So that is my whole sermon. You might be like, Anthony, you are absolutely nuts. How is that a sermon on sanctification? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, disclosure, I like Cinderella. I like the animated movie. I even liked the new one. I love the story. It's true. You know, I'm not all Pacific Rim and Voltron. There's a softer side that likes really good movies like Joe versus the Volcano. So I'll check it out. But hey, what did we start with there? We started with a pumpkin and we had some mice, right? In that scene, the fairy godmother, and by the way, I'm not trying to compare God to a fairy godmother. Don't take the analogy there. That's reading too much into it. No, I'm not supporting magic or witchcraft or anything. Don't get weird on me. Okay, just follow the analogy. We started with some common stuff, all right? Dishonorable, yucky stuff that most people don't want around. Most people don't want an old, nasty barn dog anywhere near their house, right? Most people don't want rats or mice anywhere near their house. Fairy godmother shows up. Oh my goodness, suddenly now not only do we want them around, but they become these glorious white stallions. Are you kidding me? The pumpkin becomes this amazing, glorious chariot. And you might say that was last time's message. That was, that was washed and transformed. Well, hold on, because something else has happened besides transformation. They've also been given a new purpose. The transformation makes them fit to do something else. They are for something else. They have a purpose and a destiny implied in what they've become. From common, yucky stuff to glorious stuff that is in the service of royalty. And not only that, but if they continue to act like mice, you know, who's seen this movie? Come on, raise your hand. Guys, I know you've seen it, right? You guys remember the whole part with the mice and they're singing the cool song. Aren't they cute? I mean, you like them. But how ridiculous would it be if they acted that way when they were transformed into the wonderful white stallions? They would make terrible mice, wouldn't they? Because they're not mice anymore, they're horses. And they act like horses once they're horses. The dog acts like a coachman once he's transformed. They take on what they have become. And that is every point that I'm going to make. Now we're gonna get nerdy and we're gonna dig into some expositories and stuff. But here they are, these are the three. Remember what we used to be, remember what we are, and remember what that means. Who's ready to unpack? Hi, I'm Pastor Anthony, sounds good. Awesome. First, let's talk about some BS. Before sanctification. You like that? Yeah. Yeah, I did that. That happened. All right. (laughs) We need to get a picture of what we were when we were in our yucky barn dog mouse state, okay? And the Bible gives us a pretty good impression of what that is in Romans chapter 5. So we're going to read through Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, and we're going to stop at some key words, and we're going to expound on them. What do they mean? What were we before we were Christians, before we were in a saving relationship with Jesus? What were we? Let's start. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's stop first at that word powerless. This means strengthless in various different ways, too. It can mean figuratively strengthless or morally strengthless. It means feeble, impotent, sick, without strength, and weak. Is that flattering? Let's add to that lacking in manliness and dignity for all you guys out there. We thought we were tough, didn't we, before Jesus, man? Mm, No, absolutely the opposite of that. I sum it up like this, helpless and pathetic. So when we were still helpless and pathetic, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly sounds like such a weak term there. It sounds so innocuous, but let's look at what that means. That means destitute of reverential awe towards God, condemning God, impious, irreverent, wicked. How could we sum this up really easily? I think just bad. When you were bad, irreverent, and wicked, and you had a condemning attitude towards God, on top of being feeble and impotent and helpless and pretty crappy human being, honestly. Let's move on. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners is another churchy word, isn't it? We hear that so many times we forget the impact of it. But this implies someone who is devoted to sin, preeminently sinful, especially wicked, not free from sin. At this point, most people want to disengage. And they say, we know what a sinner looks like because we've met some really, really nasty people. But the fact of the matter is, everyone who is not in a saving relationship with Jesus only has one other option, and that is to be under the thumb of sin. They are a slave to sin. Not everyone is doing the extra bad, you know, flagrant sins, but everybody is in sin's kingdom before they're transferred out. This is all of us. We can sum this up by saying sinners are people who sin because it's who they are. Guys, the inward journey is all about identity. This sanctified message is an identity message. It has to do with who you are. Before sanctification, you were a sinner. This was the identity. It was for me, and it's for everybody else. Since we have now been justified by his blood, Paul goes on, talking about Jesus' sacrifice, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, that's good news, through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? These are great verses. This shows that God loves you so much that when you were that horrible person and you were an enemy of God, he loved you enough to die for you and make you his son or daughter. But let's not skip over the word enemy. What does this mean? What does this mean for everybody on the planet who is not in a saving relationship with God? It means that they are hostile, hating, and opposing God. And those are the people God loves and came for. Now that's bad news. And so when you read this, you start to wonder if in the Cinderella video, the, uh, the mice were really actually a fit analogy. Like it should have been leeches or something nastier. It's, it's bad news, guys. This is not glorious. This is pretty bad. Helpless, weak, pathetic, impotent, irreverent, wicked, bad, bound by sin, full of hatred and hostility towards God. And that's all of us. Everybody on the planet. If you want to know what the Christian worldview is, what's the state of man without Jesus, this is a pretty good summary. And Paul says, such were some of you. And remember, that's his nice way of saying, all y'all. This was you. But that were is a gigantic word that we can't miss. Because he says they're washed, sanctified, and justified, implying that that's not them anymore. Now, there's some things on that list that are patterns of behavior and desires. Do you just stop being covetous? 
Do you just stop having homosexual desires? Do you just stop wanting to commit adultery if you're an adulterer? I'm going to go ahead and say no, because I haven't met anyone who has had a flip switch and they're just, oh, all those nasty desires are suddenly gone. I am a perfect saint. I walk two inches above the ground and I don't have any problems. I have not met that Christian ever. But something has changed. Paul uses the word were and he means it. So the first thing I want to say about sanctification, which, in case you don't know, is another way of saying holy, made holy. Guys, it has happened. It is past tense for a Christian. This is Paul's introduction. At the beginning of this letter, 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says, Hi, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says this paragraph about the Corinthian church. This is out of the NIV. To the church of God in Corinth, he's saying who he's writing to, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, if you think that that doesn't sound like a very powerful, punchy intro, like, oh, Anthony, yeah, I expected more. Let me read it out of the American Standard Version, and you're going to see some italics. Unto the church of God, which is, in, which is at Corinth, even them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. Brief note on translation. If you ever meet someone who says, translation is easy, you just take one word and you figure out what it means in the other language and you do a word-for-word exchange, no problem. Just run away. Refuse to engage. Translation is hard. It doesn't work that way which is why we keep having new translations, not because we're changing the word of God, but because English changes. Language changes. So both of these are faithful to Paul's intent. But the American Standard Version puts words in italics to let you know we as the translators have injected these because we think this is the intent. We think this makes it more readable. And they're nice enough to put it in italics so you know. When we remove the italics, it says this. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, with all that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, with all that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. Anthony, what's your point? Well, this makes Paul's point a little stronger. I'm writing this letter to all you guys who are sanctified. Saints who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, they are that. It happened. Sanctification has happened. And all the commentators I checked at the University Library agree. And we're going to read them because they say this better than I could and they're a heck of a lot smarter. This one says this. Paul then describes the church as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified is a perfect passive participle of the verb agiazo. I don't know exactly what that means. But this is their job, and they have lots of letters after their names. Here we go. That denotes these, that these believers have been sanctified in the past and now stand in a holy relationship with the Lord. Somebody say, now. now. It might seem strange to call this group of believers sanctified. <laughs> but Paul allows his theology to rule here rather than his observations. That is a nice way of saying Paul says these people have been made holy and sanctified. 
I've read the rest of the book. I don't know that I would have said that, but Paul's got perfect theology, so we'll go with it. Not sure that I would have said these guys are sanctified, but they are. Here's another one. The church in Corinth consisted of those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified here is a perfect passive participle. See, all the guys with letters talk about it. Which, according to recent studies of verbal aspect, stresses the present state of affairs. Somebody say, now. Now. Thanks to Christ's work on the cross, believers find themselves in a state of sanctification. They are now sanctified, made acceptable to God, and able to enter into and enjoy His presence. One more. As with Paul's apostleship, which he talked about in 1 Corinthians 1.1, the emphasis lies on their becoming God's people as the result of divine activity. What God has done in Christ Jesus makes them his new people. The verb sanctified probably should be understood as a metaphor for Christian conversion. That's this commentator's opinion. However, the choice of this particular metaphor is hardly accidental. Sanctification. If you are a Christian, if you are in a saving relationship with God, I've got great news. It has happened. It's done. You have been made worthy to stand in the presence of God. Past tense, done deal, because of what Jesus did. The mice have become horses. The pumpkin is a chariot, okay? It's done. That's great, but... What exactly was done? What happened? What is this sanctification thing? Well, from the same three commentaries, this is how they sum it up. Sanctified means set apart from the world and dedicated to God. It means set apart for God's special purpose and use, just as the utensils in the temple, the priests, and so on. And the third author says it means set apart for God, just as were the utensils in the temple. Okay. We're getting kind of technical. We don't normally go into the commentary so much and all that stuff, but follow me on this. Not only were they washed and transformed from one thing into another, but that thing is dedicated to God's service. They have a new identity with a new purpose. This idea of being sanctified or made holy didn't originate with Christianity. A lot of the old religions in the ancient Near East would have things that were dedicated to their deity, and they were set apart but Christianity takes it and amps it up because God himself is set apart and only in Christianity does it have anything to do with goodness and moral purity. Only in Christianity. And this God demands that you be like him. Wow. So there's a whole lot going on here with sanctification. And if you're starting to think, that maybe some obligations are following this sanctification. You're, you're reading right along with me. That's great. You got it. It has happened. You are fit to serve in God's presence. You are fit to be in the presence of God because you've been sanctified. Past tense. To be a Christian is to be transformed, given a new purpose, and belong in God's presence. You are for something else. It doesn't matter who you used to be. It doesn't matter what you used to do. It doesn't matter what you used to put your identity in. It doesn't matter what anybody else used to think of you. Part of your transformation is sanctification, and you have a new purpose. The Bible talks at length about that, but remember last week. The dirty, yucky Jeep is now transformed into a Corvette. The Corvette is for something else. 
The Jeep and the Corvette are not for the same thing. I love that Corvette, by the way. I use that every chance I can get. Something about that car. I'm not a car guy, but man, there was a time in my life when I would want the Jeep more, but I think that might be changing. And it's just beautiful. I'm about to take a verse out of context. Is that fair warning? Okay, good. Glad you glad you're right there with me. Oh, it's fine. Go ahead. Don't tell my professors. Look, there's a <laughs> just it's okay to laugh. Yeah, it's fine. Um, but it's still in Romans, and we used Romans 6 earlier, so it's kind of fair. We're going to look at a verse in Romans 9, where Paul talks about two different kinds of vessels. I, I am. I, I am kind of butchering Paul's context, but it works, I promise. I asked Cameron. I really did, too. Romans 9, 20 to 21. He's rebuking some of the Roman Christians, and he says this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We're all people, right? So we're all made out of the same stuff. This is, this is, you know, I mean, nobody's going to dispute that. I didn't get saved and suddenly I'm made out of titanium. Sometimes I wish that was the case. In the gym, that would be really handy. Actually... I deadlift in socks, and I, like, kicked the weight rack and cut my toe up. And, oh, I felt very human suddenly. But I digress. We're all made out of the same stuff. This verse is saying the same vessel, the same vase, let's say. I have a beautiful picture of a vase here. You could make a vase for honorable use, or you could make a vase for dishonorable use. They might look very similar, perhaps. I picked this one because I think it is amazingly gorgeous. I googled beautiful vases, and I saw this one and thought, dag on, that's really pretty. So that's for honorable use. Can you imagine what you'd do with that? I mean, back in the day, maybe you'd put wine in it, or maybe you'd put flowers in it. It doesn't matter. It's gorgeous. But you know what they mean when they say dishonorable use for a vessel back in the day? They mean kind of like this. <laughs> yep. Garbage and other garbagey things. So... Made out of the same stuff. Okay, I should have got a porcelain vase too. But which one would you really rather be? I mean, I think St. Paul's making a pretty obvious point here. I think I'm going to go with... Yeah, I'm going to go with this one, I think. Sanctification. When you're sanctified, your purpose changes. You are no longer for dishonorable use. You are now for honorable use. And it is as dramatic as going from a toilet to a beautiful vase fit to be in the presence of God. The problem is, a lot of us still think that our identity, who we really are deep down, is this. We get saved, but we remember, don't we? We get saved, but we didn't have the men in black, like, memory wipe thing. We get saved, but we still hang around the same people. Like, dude, I have known you since you were 10. I remember when we blah, blah, blah. I remember when you blah, 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 blah. We need to fight, guys. To put our identity where God says our identity is. And when we feel like that, we need to remember that we're this. Because oftentimes, we don't remember and we should. We're going to look at an example of this in negative. Okay, from Batman, because I just felt like doing it again. This is one of the most annoying scenes in the whole movie to me. I cannot stand Rachel Dawes. Am I allowed to admit that? My goodness. Dude, okay. Remember this, he's been dropping hints the whole movie, like, I'm really persuaded, but I don't want you to know. And he leaves all these little clues. 
And this is when he's kind of having his moment where he knows that she knows and she knows that he knows that she knows and they talk about Batman and he says, Batman is just a symbol, Rachel. Like, oh, I can, this is just really, it's really me, I'm not really Batman. And then Rachel says this, I'm gonna do my Rachel Dawes voice. No, this is your mask. Your real face is the one that the criminals now fear. Thank you. And then she goes on to say a bunch of ridiculous stuff about how, like, the man I loved never came back. Because remember, first of all, what is her problem? Like, he was a whiny kid failing out of college, and he comes back this super disciplined ninja warrior for justice with, like, moral integrity that he never had before. And that's the guy she doesn't want? What is your problem? But I digress. We, we talk about superheroes all wrong. Hold on, this is important. I, maybe I shouldn't have added the humor. He's making a mistake, not her. He's making a mistake. Because Batman is not just a symbol. His identity has shifted. She's right. The man that she loved, who I think was actually just a whiny punk, didn't ever come back. What came back was Batman. And we talk about superheroes correctly when we say Clark Kent is Superman. Not Superman is Clark Kent. Because Superman isn't Clark Kent. Clark Kent is the fake. Superman's the real deal. He's pretending right now. She's right. She sees who he really is underneath. And it's Batman. He doesn't feel like that's the case though. And he's the one that's wrong. I want to make a point that when he pretends to act like he's just Bruce and Batman is just a symbol... You know what he's doing? He's being a hypocrite. Because he's not living out of the reality of his identity. We're going to finish up with that point, but I'm going to scoop forward just a little bit. So what are we now? Same commentators. Here we go. Is this getting too long? You guys okay? You have it in there? All right. Since believers have been set apart by God, what now? What, What do we do with this? They are to live in a way that reflects that set-apartness. No way. That was the takeaway from the first message. I must have been right. These guys are pretty smart. Lots of letters. People should see Christians as different from the world and its values. This lack of distinctiveness is precisely one of the problems Paul was facing in Corinth. Even though the believers were sanctified in Christ Jesus, far too many of them were living unholy, less than sanctified, Lives. They weren't living in the right identity. They were living like people that had never been changed, like people that had never been given a new purpose. And Paul says, you guys have to fix this. Sainthood, in Paul's letters, is not some elevated status reserved for a few extraordinary individuals, as, regrettably, in much modern usage. It refers to the sanctity of all true believers who are saints by virtue of God's call to salvation and our underline is mine, but I think it's important. They are expected to bring him glory. There's that obligation we were kind of feeling. Expected to bring him glory. Why? Because you've been made for it. This is part of your new purpose. You are for something else. And this is part of what you're for. To, in God's service and to bring him glory. For Paul, there is the closest possible relationship between the experience of grace and one's behavior that evidences that experience of grace. Paul himself is as concerned as anyone that the latter, the right behavior, 
should not be perceived as coming first or as leading to the former. He's saying, Paul doesn't want you to think you have to act right before you experience grace. Paul doesn't want you to think that. But those who concern themselves with grace without equal concern for behavior have missed Paul's own theological urgencies. They've missed the whole point. It's impossible for Paul to say, you've been transformed and sanctified, but you don't have to act like it. It's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same thing. Believers are to become what they have already been made. I think that that is a fantastic way to say it. Believers are to become what they have already been made. We must be noticeably distinct and different. We must bring God glory. We must be as concerned with right behavior as we, as we are with right belief and vice versa. We can't skip any of that stuff because it's what we're for. It's part of the honor and the role that we have now. To sum it up in Anthony's words, we enter the process of sanctification because we have been sanctified. There really isn't as much of a difference as some people would like to make it, I don't think. So, I want to end, suddenly, the plane is landing, with a challenge. And it might seem sideways at first, but here's the challenge. You guys ready? Don't be a hypocrite. Stop it. Now, I don't mean the way you normally think it means. Because I talk to a lot of people and they say the church is full of hypocrites. And what they really mean is, sure, they look nice and they're doing all these great things. But I know they're just rotten human beings like everybody else. That's... Totally wrong thinking. Throw that out. Crumple it up and get rid of it. That's not how Christians are hypocrites. Because remember, this is now you, the Corvette Z06. You have been transformed. You have a new purpose. You're for something else. You're supposed to bring God glory. You're made and tuned for it. You belong on the open road, 150 miles an hour. I was passed by a Ferrari last Monday. No kidding. On 131. And it was weird. He just tore by me and I felt honored. (laughs) (laughs) I don't normally feel honored when I'm passed by a car. But man, I saw that stallion and that red guy. I was like, like, wow. I'm like, thank you, sir. For for passing me on the field. It was weird. But this is who you are. Now, if you mess up. And if you crash. And you crash your new Z06 into a soybean field, for instance, as this picture is it's from a newspaper headline. You know, there are some things that are going on there. That was a mistake. You probably lost control, and you ended up someplace you never wanted to be. Everybody following my analogy, does this happen? Okay? But let me ask you a question. Is that a Corvette, or is that a Jeep? That's still a Corvette. Is it muddy? Yeah, but it's still a Corvette. Didn't change into a Jeep. We all agree. It didn't get retransformed back. So we yank that out with a crane or a tow truck because it doesn't belong there anymore. We wash it up, and it's a Corvette. That is not hypocrisy. Everybody just heard me say that. Taking a wrong turn, winding up in the soybean field, metaphorically, does not make you a hypocrite. Makes you a little muddy, makes you in need of a car wash, might make your insurance premiums go up, but you're not changed back. You have to shake that off. Hypocrisy looks like this. (laughs) What the heck is that? (laughs) Is that a truck? Is that a stingray? I have no idea. What is it trying to be? 
Hypocrisy is ugly and ridiculous. It's not living out of your true identity. Christians are hypocrites when they sin. Christians are hypocrites when they act like sinners instead of saints. If you're a Christian and you've been transformed and you've been sanctified and you've been backslidden and you've gone away from the Lord and you're starting to do some of the old things you used to do and you're getting into some old patterns, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the mistake. I'm not talking about accidentally ending up in the soybean field. I mean you're really going back. You are being a hypocrite. Stop it. You're not a mouse anymore, you're a stallion. You're not a pumpkin, you're a chariot. You're not a loser, you're a saint. Stop being a hypocrite. Reject it when somebody says you're a hypocrite because you act like a saint, because guess what? That's who you actually are. And when you find yourself in a pattern of sin, you need to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, this is not who I am. God, give me the grace to live out who you've made me and not who I used to be. On the count of three, capiche? One, two, three. Excellent. Let's pray to close.